You're listening to the New Song Students Podcast. I'm Jackson, and I'm the student pastor at New Song Church, located in Oklahoma City. We hope this message builds your faith and helps you to know God better in a greater way today. Enjoy the message. All right, if you got a Bible with you, get it out. You're going to need it. Get your notes out. Get something to follow along with me tonight. Because we're going to be going deep. We're kicking off. Well, we're not kicking off. We're, we're jumping back into week two of a series that we kicked off last week called The Classics. Let your neighbors say, The Classics. The Classics. In this series, okay, we are going back to the basics. We're addressing some foundational building blocks of our entire Christian faith. Some of you guys are going to be learning some things in this series for the first time ever. Some of you guys, are, you're going to be hearing things that are refreshers to you, that are reminding you of things you've already learned, maybe in children's ministry. Some of us, let's be honest, we're going to be unlearning some bad theology, but that's okay. You know why? Because no matter where you find yourself in this series, whether this is new information for you, or it's you're relearning or you're unlearning some things, wherever you find yourself, it's a good place to be. Because what we're trying to do in this series is accomplish what Peter talks about in 1 Peter 3, where he said that we as believers need to be prepared. Do you guys remember this last week? Somebody say, be prepared. Be prepared. Look at this. He says this, 1 Peter 3, 14. This is our, our scripture for the whole series. It says, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord is holy, always being prepared. If you got a Bible with you, underline that. You're taking notes, write that down. Always being prepared to make a defense. Somebody was ready to repeat after me. <laughs> Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for the reason for your hope that is in you. So, New Song students, and by the way, Zane, can we just get the house lights up a little bit? I can't see anybody. Okay, if somebody, New Song students, were to come to you, if somebody were to come to you and they were to ask you, they were to notice, hey, you're a person who follows Jesus. You're a person who goes to church all the time. I'm always hearing about New Song students. I see you bring your Bible. I see you read your Bible. There's something different about you. If somebody came to you, New Song student, and they asked you a question about your faith, would you be prepared? Would you be prepared to give an answer? If somebody came up to you and was like, hey, uh, I don't understand how God is love, but doesn't accept everybody into heaven? Or why is the cross such a big deal for your faith? Or why don't you party like the rest of us? Like what's different about you? Like what is going on in your life that makes you not afraid of the future? Like if somebody comes to you, New Song student in this room, and asks you one of those questions, would you be prepared to give an answer? If not, that's okay. That's exactly why we're doing this series. And, and I also want you to know that if you do have an answer to any of those questions, that's not like, oh, if you have an answer, then you're a theologian. And if you don't have an answer, then you're not a theologian. Because remember, we learned last week, guess what? All of us are theologians. Mark, Michael Lawrence says this, the question is not whether or not you're going to be a theologian, but what kind of theologian you're going to be. Okay, why is everybody a theologian? Well, because Everybody, every human being either has a belief or an unbelief in God. And that viewpoint, that perspective is dictating everything that they do in their life. 
everybody in this room, we all have different viewpoints, different perspectives, different ideas on what is true and what is not true. But you need to know just because you have a viewpoint doesn't mean it's the right viewpoint, right? Just because you have a perspective doesn't mean it's right. And so all of us are theologians by nature, but not all of us are good theologians. And that's exactly why we're doing this series, because in order to be a good theologian, somebody who knows who God really is, we have to know what is true, right? So in this series, I also want you to know that this series is not about me, like, and whoever preaches in the series giving you answers so that if somebody asks you a question, you can like sound all smart and religious and win all of the debates in school about Christianity. That's not what this series is about. It's not about giving you just like answers to give somebody to shoot out when they, they give you like a, a Christian pop quiz. This series is about expanding your desire for worship. Because the study of theology is not about gaining head knowledge. The study of theology is worship. Because the more you learn about God, guess what? The more you want to give your life to him. The more you, you know who God actually is, the more inclined you're going to be in your life to give him all of your life. Amen? So last week we looked at what is theology. We looked at the who, the what, the how, the why of theology. So if you missed that, man, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to that on the podcast. We talked about the doctrine of the word of God and how the word of God is our starting place for anything. And tonight, we're going to move into our next doctrine, our next belief, our next standard or foundation block in our faith, which is this, the doctrine of God. We're just going to talk about God. Who wants to talk about God tonight? It's going to be good stuff. So I hope you're ready. We're going to talk about God because last week we talked about the word, how God ultimately revealed himself to us through the Bible. So now we're going to ask the question, what is God like? Not what does he like, because I think we all understand God obviously likes things like Chick-fil-A and um, pickleball and all that fun stuff. Like, God likes fun stuff. I'm not saying what does God like. I'm asking the question, what is God like? What is it like to know this God? So, Romans chapter 1, starting verse 19. Y'all ready? Yeah. Y'all don't seem ready. I said, all y'all ready? Yeah. Okay, here we go. Let's jump in. This is our scripture for tonight. It says this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So Paul is saying you can see God everywhere even though you don't know God. Even though you might not know who God is, we can all find him very clearly. He's not hiding from us. Does that make sense? Verse 21, For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the mortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Skip down to verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Whew. That's a heavy scripture right there, y'all, but good, right? So let's pray, and we're going to dive into this doctrine of God. Who is God? What is he like? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes with me? God, I thank you so much that you are here. 
that this is not just a room full of people and that's it, but this is a room full of people in the presence of God. I thank you that you're here. I thank you that you want to speak to us. God, I lift up every single student in this room to you, God, and I pray that you would make yourself known to us tonight. Whether we've known you since we were just little kids and we gave our life to you, would you make yourself known to us again? Or maybe we're here tonight and we don't know you. We don't know what you're like. God, tonight, would you make yourself known to every single student in the room? In Jesus' mighty and precious name, everybody said amen. Amen. Okay, so last week we started with the most important doctrine. We talked about the doctrine of God's word, Um, but, but... Uh, what I want to do tonight is actually want to backtrack a little bit. Um, We talked about God's word first specifically because it's the way that God ultimately decided to reveal himself to us. And God is not a God that he's like trying to hide from us. God wants to be in relationship with us. And so in order to do that, he made himself as clear as possible. He gave us the Bible and he said, this is all you need to know about me. You study this, you will know me. In fact, We looked at that scripture in Psalm 138 where it says that God actually elevates his word above his own nature. Do you remember that? What that means is that God wants you and I to know that he's a man of his word. So everything that he's put in his word is exactly who he is. There's no lying, no falsities. It's exactly who he is. Now, that's why we started this series off because if we want to know God more, we have to start with how he revealed himself to us, which is his word. But we do that as believers because we all start from the same assumption that God exists. But my question for you tonight is, what if you don't believe that? Like, if you don't believe God exists, or maybe you're unsure if God exists, you're like, yeah, maybe, sure, there could be a God, but, like, why the God of the Bible? Well, if that's you, you're probably not going to start with scripture like the rest of us in the room. In fact, I want you to know, New Song students, there are people that go to your schools, there are people that you play sports with that are asking these questions. Like, they don't know. Like, you know, but they don't know if God exists. They're unsure. And so how do we know God exists? I want to actually answer this question tonight. Are are y'all cool with that? We're going to get a little philosophical tonight. Y'all ready to get philosophical? Let's go. So... How do we know God exists? Well, there's actually two main arguments that we can start to look at. Um, One of them is inward. It's an inward evidence. And the other is an outward evidence. So I want to break these down for you real quick. The first is we can know God exists from an inner knowing. If you're taking notes, write this down. Number one, inner knowing or an inward evidence. I got a few scriptures for you that talk about every human having an inner knowing of God. Look at this. Romans 121 says, For although they knew God, remember we just read this, they did not honor him as God or give him thanks, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. So that scripture says that we know God, we know he's present, we choose to reject him out of our pride. Does that make sense? Hebrews 8:10 says this. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their, ooh, anybody paying attention? (laughs) I will put my laws in their, in their mind, and shall write them on their hearts. Yes, y'all sound good. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. I'm going to skip down to Romans 2.14. It says this. 
For when Gentiles who, have, who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are, all, they are a law to themselves even though they don't have the law. So what that's talking about is, you know the law, the Ten Commandments? Yeah? yeah. That the children of Israel had? That was given to the children of Israel. But Paul is saying that when people who are not God's chosen people still obey the Ten Commandments, like they don't want to murder, they don't want to lie, they don't want to steal, that is proof that God has actually wired us with the law in our hearts. Does that make sense? 15, it's, verse 15, it says, They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse them or even excuse them. This is talking about how, man, I didn't need to know Jesus to know I was messing up, right? Like, have you ever done something and you felt bad about it? Why would you feel bad about it? Well, it's because the law is written on our hearts. Does that make sense? So these passages speak to like an inner knowing that every single human has about God, about the existence of God. But there's actually two specific arguments, like philosophical arguments that talk about this. The first one is called the moral argument, which is kind of what we just talked about. So note takers, y'all ready for this one? Moral argument is this. It argues that humans have an innate understanding of right and wrong, and that is evidence of a creator. So what does that mean in normal person speak? What does that mean in normal people talk? Well, it means this. Like, sure, you, you might not believe in God. That's fine. But do you think that murdering is wrong? Yeah. Would you be upset? Like, you might not believe in God, but would you be upset if I came to your house in the middle of the night and stole your car? Yeah, you'd probably be upset by that. Would you be upset if we knew each other for 10 years and then you found out 10 years later that I lied about everything? Right? Would you be upset about that? Yeah. Yes. And I think every single person, unless they're trolling you, every single person in humanity would answer yes to all of those questions, right? Yes, murder is wrong. Yes, stealing is wrong. Yes, if you lie to me, I don't want to hang out with you. That's wrong. Those things are objectively wrong. That means that they're wrong at any point in time, at any point in history, in any country, with any people group, they've always been wrong. There's just some things about us as humans that we've always seen as being wrong. Why though? Why do we think those things are wrong? Because if you're a person who doesn't believe in God, if you're a person who doesn't believe there's a God who created us and who, who tells us what right and wrong is, if we're really just animals, which by the way, I don't know if you know, but sometimes animals like eat their own babies and stuff. <laughs> But they don't care, right? So if we evolved from, from those, why in the world do humans believe that certain things are right and certain things are wrong? Does this make sense? Well, the answer, if you're talking about it from an unbelief in God, the answer is no. Those things actually don't matter. It doesn't matter if I murder or I steal or I cheat. Because guess what? If everything wasn't created on purpose, then nothing that has been created has a purpose. I want to say that again. If everything wasn't created on purpose, then nothing that is created has purpose. But the fact that all of humanity, since we've ever existed, we've always had these rules inside of us that for some reason we abide by. That is proof that somebody outside of us put a law in us, 
They put a right and a wrong in us. God did this. That's the inward argument for God. You guys follow me tonight? I know we're going deep. This is some good stuff, though. I wish I learned this when I was y'all's age. You guys are, you guys are blessed. The second one is this. The second in, inward argument is this. It's called, y'all ready for a big word? The ontological argument. Ooh, what does this mean? Ontological. Get your notes ready. It says this. It argues that the very concept of God demands that there is an actual existence of God. So this speaks to the fact that our ability to even think about somebody who is invisible to us, who is bigger than us, who is outside of us, is evidence that God exists. And we can live an entire life, like distracted by all of the physical, material things in this world. We can live an entire life distracted by having our needs met, getting food, getting stuff we want, feeling good. But at the end of the day, if we live an entire life distracted by material things, at some point, every single human has to deal with things that are actually invisible. We have to answer the question of, does God exist? We have to answer the question of, does my life have meaning? Is any of this purpose? All of those things are invisible. You can't study those things by looking at them like looking at a tree. They're invisible to us. Not only that, but our entire life, all of the decisions that we make, they filter through this lens of either I believe in God or I don't believe in God. Our entire life is that way. And I think that both of these arguments can actually be summed up into one phrase. If you're taking notes, write this down. Humans were made for worship. We were made to worship. It is in our DNA. We have to worship something. We have to worship somebody. Worship is, uh, to simplify the act of worship, it's not just what we did before service where we were like jumping and going crazy and Caleb is over here moshing and we're jumping and we're like, one, two, three, four. That's not, that is worship, but that's not only worship. If you're taking notes, I think a good way to think about worship is this. To worship is to live for something. To worship is to live for something. So what you live for is what you worship. What gives your life purpose, what gets you out of bed in the morning what you spend most of your time doing, what, what gives your life purpose is what you worship. Whatever that thing is, is the thing that you choose to worship. And you see, we as humans, we were made to worship, to live for something. Like for some strange reason, humans, we can't just live with all of our like physical needs met and be okay. Like we can't just do that. If we just had food and water and a place to stay, you would go crazy if you never had something to worship. Like my dog, Ash, he's a deaf Australian shepherd. He's very cute. I love that dog so much. I'm gonna be so sad when he dies one day. But um, that was morbid. <laughs> but um, I love Ash so much. He is my dog. But you need to know something about Ash. He's a dog. And you know what? He is totally cool living his entire existence, sleeping 16 hours a day, drinking water, eating a bowl of kibble, and getting some pets every now and then. Like, if you just scratch off his physical needs, he's not questioning his entire existence. He's not, he's not like, why am I here? I don't know what I'm doing. He's not doing that because he's a dog. But we as humans, we were made for something bigger. Are you following me? Like, if you find yourself in a place like my dog Ash, where all of your needs are being met, but you don't have purpose in life, you are going to find something to give your life purpose. 
you are going to find something to, to worship and to live your life for. This is, I think John Calvin puts it in a really great way. He says the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. The human heart is a perpetual idol factory. We can't help but take something and turn it into something that we worship, making something an idol. And either we're going to choose to worship the one true God, or we're going to choose to worship something lesser than him. But you're going to worship. It's not like those who believe in God worship and those who don't, don't worship. No, everybody worships. Just some of us are going to believe in worshiping the one true God, and others of us are going to worship anything and everything but him. This is why it says this in Romans 22, like we, like we said, Romans 1 22. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul is saying that you have the opportunity to glory God through your life, or you can glory a bunch of lesser things that don't even add up to how good God is. Worship, it's not optional for us. Who you worship is optional. What you worship is optional, but worship is not optional for us. Now, most of us in this room, we're not going to find ourselves worshiping statues and golden calves like they did in Scripture. Like, we're not typically going to be doing that. And if I, if I walked into your room and you had a bunch of golden calves everywhere, I would be a little worried about you. <laughs> but most of us aren't worshiping idols like that, but we definitely are worshiping some lesser things than God. Like people, will, they will live their entire life for things like money, for things like drugs, like, like a, a powder. You will live your entire life for a powder that makes you feel a certain way. People will live their entire lives for sports. And don't get me wrong, I like sports, but sports don't love you. Sports don't help you. Sports don't serve you. Like sports are going to end one day, and what are you going to have when sports end? Like, sports are a lesser God. Are you following me? Some of us are giving ourselves to some lesser things. Some of us in this room, we are giving our entire lives away to a phone. Like, hear me. Like, we're giving our life, all of our attention, all of our affection to, to a, a piece of metal, right? Like, that's what we're doing. And we can live our lives this way. These are some inward arguments for the existence of God. You and I have to worship something. You and I, for some reason, know that there is right and there's wrong and there's good and there's evil. But there's another evidence of God's existence, and it's outward. Somebody say outward. outward. It's outward. It's number two. If you're taking notes, write this down. It's nature and scripture. Romans 1, 19. Let's go back to it. It says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and his divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since creation of the world and the things that have been made. So what's Paul's, what, what Paul's saying is there's some outward evidence of the, the existence of God. Scripture is one of those, obviously, for us as believers and even for unbelievers. When an unbeliever reads the word of God over time, it is going to do something to a person's heart. So that's evidence. But there's outward evidence that nature, everything we see outside of us, is evidence of a creator. Like, you don't have to believe in Jesus to, like, look out at an amazing sunset and just, like, the presence of God hits you. Or, like, you look up at the sky and you can actually see stars because maybe you're not in Oklahoma City. And so you're somewhere where you can actually see the stars. You look up at the stars and you're just like, 
wow, you start to question like purpose and meaning and like deeper things than just the shows you watch, right? That's evidence that there is a God who created. Dude, my wife, Haley, when she went to medical school, she's still in school for physical therapy. When you study the human body and how intricately designed our bodies are, God literally thought of everything. You can't tell me that that isn't evidence of a creator. And I actually think that it takes more faith to believe that all of this was an accident. Like, think about it. I think it takes way more faith to believe that everything we see Everything fine-tuned perfectly all happened by accident. I actually think the more logical thing is to think, no, this is very clearly designed by somebody. Somebody, there's no way this just happened. There has to be a designer. This is some outward evidence. You guys following me tonight? Okay, so let's say that you have somebody in your life and you, you walk them through these evidences. You're like, hey, inward, ontological, Moral, you're like talking about all these philosophical things. And they're like, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe there is a God. But what is he like? Like, is he mean? Is he far? Does he need something from me? Does he care about my life? Like, what is this God like? There's a quote by A.W. Tozer. I'm going to kind of sum it up so you don't need to put it up on the screen. But he basically says, the thing that comes to mind when you're asked, what is God like? The way you answer that question, what is God like, is the most important thing about your life. How you view God. David Guzik says this, instead of glorifying God, we transformed our idea of him into forms and images more comfortable to our corrupt, darkened hearts. And I think this is all summed up so simply and beautifully in this quote from John Mark Cromer. He says this, Here's how you know you've created a God in your own image. He agrees with you on everything. Now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. This is where learning and understanding good theology is crucial for us. Because if we're not careful, as we are believers and as we're following Jesus, if we don't know God and we don't know him for who he truly is, we're not rooted in his word, I've been here before, I've done this before, you will do it too if you're not careful, is you'll start to worship a God made in your own image. He'll like all the things you like. He'll hate all of the things that you hate. But I don't want to worship a God that I created in my mind. Do you? No, I want to worship the one true God. And so in order to do that, we need to go to the source. We need to know what he's like. Amen? Okay, so to help make this a little more fun and interesting, instead of me just giving you some points, I want to go to a story where Paul does this in real time with a group of people who definitely had no context for the God of the Bible. So it's in Acts uh, chapter 16 and 17. And the context of this, it, it starts with this. Paul, he's in this place called Thessalonica. He's in a synagogue, and he is trying to preach the gospel to a bunch of Jewish people. And he's preaching them some good stuff, telling them about Jesus. He's going to the Old Testament, telling them like, hey, Jesus is in the Old Testament. It, it all points to him, and they are not having it. They're rejecting his message, and they kick him out. So Paul, overnight, travels to this other uh, city called Berea, and he finds another Jewish synagogue, and he starts preaching the gospel to these Jewish people, and they're actually starting to like his message a little bit, but then this is like some crazy reality TV show drama stuff, 
the Jews in Thessalonica, they go to Berea and they start talking smack about Paul. And so then all of the Jews are upset and they don't want Paul's message. And so Paul leaves and he's like, fine, I got good food for you, but if you don't want it, I'm going to serve it to somebody who wants this, right? So he's like, fine, you don't want my message. I'll give it to somebody who's going to take it. So Paul travels to Athens and Paul goes to this Gentile place and it's an amazing city. It's like the center of everything. It's like the New York City of Bible times. It's the center of art, philosophy, architecture, power, money, status. It's all in Athens. So Paul goes to this place, and you would think that like he's impressed by what he sees in Athens. But look at what Acts 17 says. Look at this. Now, while Paul was waiting for them in, at Athens... His spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So what's the first thing we see in this story? Well, it's what we just talked about. Humans were made for worship. And Paul enters into this city that has absolutely no context for the God of the Bible, but that has not stopped them from worshiping something. They have filled their entire city with idols, and he walks in, and it depresses him at what he sees. David Guzik says this, As Paul sailed to Athens from the sea near Berea, he came to a city that he had probably never been to, and like, like any tourist, he was ready to be impressed by the famous and historic city. You ever been in, like, excited to go see a new city you've never been to before? So this is how he's coming to this new city. He's excited to see what he sees. But look at this. Which hundreds of years before was one of the most glorious and important cities in the world. But when Paul toured Athens, he was only depressed by the magnitude of idolatry he saw all around. So even though this city is so impressive by all outward measures, Paul comes in and he sees everything. He sees everything through the glitz and the glamour of Athens. And he sees that this is a place full of idols that don't love humans, don't serve humans, don't help humans. Man, New Song students, I think we need to adopt this kind of heart that Paul has. Like, I'd encourage you to start finding the idols in the places you're at all the time. Like, I'd encourage you to start going into the places and spaces that you're a part of, like your schools, and you start to ask the question, can I see the idols that are reigning in my school? Like, when you're in the locker room and you're hearing people talk, do you know what the idols they're worshiping are? Can you hear that? Can you pick those things out from what you see? Now, Paul sees these things, and it it causes him to want to do something. He's like, I got to preach the gospel to these people. And this is what it should do for us, man. When we are in our schools and places where we see idols everywhere. And remember, I'm not talking about like little golden calves. I'm talking about people giving their lives to things lesser than God. When you see that, what does it cause you to do? What does it cause you to do? Because it caused Paul to preach Jesus. So he preaches Jesus. He does something about it. And these people are hungry. They want to hear the message that he has. And it's crazy because with the Jewish people, Paul had a different approach. When he preached the gospel to them, he started with the Bible. He started with the Old Testament. But he does something a little different with these people who don't have any context for the Bible. Look at this. Acts 17, verse 22. Y'all still hanging in with me? Okay. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, I don't want to say that wrong, 
Aeropagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. So Paul's like, y'all are worshiping a lot of stuff right now. <laughs> Look at this. Look what he says. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with the, the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. So Athens is so full of idols. They worshiped so many different gods that they were worried that they were missing a few. They were like, what if we're not worshiping all of the gods? Or what if we're not worshiping the most powerful God? So they literally had an altar made and they just wrote on it to the unknown God. Like, just kind of like, it's like when you're taking a test and it's like all of the above. This was the all of the above God. They're just like, uh, we might be missing a few, so to all of the above gods. And so Paul comes up and he's like, hey, you want to know who the all of the above God is? You want to know? I'll tell you. And he starts to give them some context for who this God is like. And as he does, I think that he gives us three characteristics of what God is like. Y'all want to know what God is like? So I want to look at these three things that Paul tells us about what God is like. Now, I want you to know what we're about to talk about, they're, they're called the attributes of God or the characteristics of God, but these are just three. Like, I, if we were going to do all of them, we'd be here all night long, and this would be an entire series, but this is just one message. So this is not all of who God is. This is just three aspects that we see in here. In fact, I'd encourage you guys, when, we, when you go home this week, Maybe search this up. Maybe do a little research yourselves. Like, hey, what are the attributes of God? And start learning this stuff for yourself. But what is God like? What does Paul tell them? Well, let's go back to our scripture. Acts 17, verse 24 says this. The God who made the world and everything in it, being the Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. The first thing that Paul lets these people know about what God is like is he says this, God is independent. God is independent. Okay, what in the world does that mean, God is independent? Well, if you're taking notes, this is what that means. Independent. God does not need us or the rest of creation for anything. Yet, we and the rest of creation bring him glory and bring him joy. Okay, so simply put, just to put it at face value, y'all need to know something. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. God doesn't need your worship. He loves it, but he doesn't need it. He is still completely God, whether all of creation worships him or not. Like, our worship doesn't make God more God. Does that make sense? Why is it important for us to know that God is independent? Well, some of us have a misunderstanding about God. We, we see, we think that God wanted somebody to love him, and that's why he created humans. Like, God wanted somebody to love him and to bring him glory. But here's two huge problems with that view of God. The first one is this. It kind of makes God seem a little weak. Like if he needs you to love him and to puff up his ego to make him feel good, that's kind of weak. Like if God needs us to be more God, 
That's not the God that we worship. The second problem with this issue is it forgets, and it, 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 uh, it forgets the fact that we don't serve a God who is just one God. We serve a God who is a triune God. He's a trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you need to know that long before anything was created, long before the first human ever showed up on the planet, God was in a relationship. God was in a perfect, unified relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, perfectly communicating, perfectly loving one another. And it wasn't like when you and I, like if, have you ever had a best friend that you spent way too much time with and then you like had a conversation where you're like, hey, maybe we should like branch out a little bit and like add somebody else because I'm kind of spending way too much time with you. It wasn't like the Holy Spirit went to Jesus and was like, hey, it's kind of been an eternity. What do you think about like finding some new friends? Like that's, that's not why God created us. God didn't create us because he needed love. Why did God create us? Well, it's because he loves. I, I want you to get that for a second. God doesn't need your love. He created all of this because he loves. Because think about this. The very nature of love is not to take, but it's actually to give. That's what love is. Love is not taking. Love is giving. And so God created a creation and a people that actually don't give him anything in return. And yet he created us anyway. That is an evidence of the love of God. Are you hearing me tonight? This is amazing. Like, God loves us so much that he created us. And sure, he loves our worship. Like, when you guys are down here worshiping him, it brings him so much joy. But it doesn't make him more God. He created us because he loves us. This is amazing. Wayne Grudem says this. Someone might wonder, if God doesn't need us for anything, then are we important at all? Is there any significance to our existence or to the existence of the rest of creation? In response, it must be said that we are, in fact, very meaningful because God has created us and has determined that we would be meaningful to him. Look at this last quote. This is amazing, New Song students. To be significant to God is to be significant in the most ultimate sense. No greater personal significance can be imagined. And Paul, Paul wanted these people in Athens to know, hey, this God that is the one true God, he doesn't live in temples, and he also doesn't need anything from you, but he gives life to you, and he loves you. And look at the next thing that he says. Look at this. Which, by the way, I want you to know, if you're taking notes, write this down. This is why God's love is so important. The starting place of knowing God has to be us knowing his love. It has to be that. Like, if our relationship with God is based on the things that I need to give him in order to make him happy, you're not worshiping the one true God. Our worship starts from the place of, no, 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 God loves us, and that's why I give him my worship. Are you following me tonight, New Song students? What's the next thing he says? We're going to... Wrap this sucker up. Acts 17, verse 26. He says, Paul continues, he says, And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the, all the face of the earth, having determined and allotted periods and, and the and boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek him and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Look at this. This is amazing. Underline this if you have your Bible. Yet, he is actually not far from each one of us, 
For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said. He said, Paul's saying that some of your poets who don't even know God, they are, they are glorifying God by accident. Look at this. For we indeed are his offspring. Okay, the second thing we need to know about this God that we worship is God is infinite and personal. He's infinite and personal. Psalm 145, look at this. Every day I will bless the Lord and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. Okay, y'all need to know God is infinite. We as humans will never fully know God, ever. Even the theology that we're talking about in this series, man, it is like microscopic, barely scratching the surface of how big and how good and how amazing God is. Like, like the psalmist just said, like God is unsearchable. And yet, at the same time, we can know him. It's kind of like your, your friend, or for me, like my wife. I know a lot of things about my wife, Haley, but I don't know everything. I don't know the thoughts in her head 24-7. I don't know the subconscious things going in her mind, but that doesn't stop me from knowing her, right? You don't have to know the details about everybody to know them. In the same way, God is infinite, yet personal. Are you following me? He is unsearchable, yet we can know him. Wayne Grudem says this. This is so cool, New Song students. Lean in with me. Apart from the true religion found in the Bible, no system of religion has a God who is both infinite and personal. For example, the gods of ancient Greek and Roman mythology were personal, but not infinite. They had weakness and frequent moral failures, even petty rivalries, like Zeus. He's upset because somebody took his lightning bolts. On the other hand, Deism portrays a God who is infinite, but too far removed from the world to be personally involved in it. We can pray to God, worship him, obey him, and love him, and he can speak to us and rejoice in us and love us. Paul wanted these people to know that God, he's unsearchable, but he also wants to be in you. He wants to make his home in your heart. He's not a God who's far. He's a God who's big, but he's also a God who is close. New Song students, is this the kind of God that you worship? Or does your God, is he locked away in the church? Is he locked away in a feeling that you get when you're here at New Song students? Or is the God that you worship able to walk with you, in you, through it all? Man, we serve a personal God, New Song students. This is who God is. He's infinite, yet he wants you to know him. How good is this? What else is God? This is the last thing as we get ready to close. I want to invite the band to come up. This is what Paul says. This is what he wants the people of Athens to know. Verse 29, being then God's offspring. So he's like, hey, you are God's children. You don't even know it, but God created you. But here's what that means for you. We ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he appointed. And this he gave the assurance to all by raising him, talking about Jesus, from the dead. The last thing Paul wanted these people to know about God is this. God is independent. God is infinite yet personal. And this God 
is jealous. This God is jealous. He's jealous for you. Paul paints this picture of God who is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's personal. But God is not just like some energy that lives inside of us that makes us feel good. God's not just like some blessing that comes onto your life to make your life better. Like, that's, that's not who God is. God is actually jealous for you. And that word jealous is not like the sin of jealousy like, like we think of, like when we envy something that actually doesn't belong to us. Like, that's when we're jealous. We tend to be jealous for things that don't belong to us. But God is jealous for something that actually belongs to him. It's kind of like this. Haley and I laugh about this all the time, but sometimes we'll be on the couch and I'll get like a random text from like an unknown number. And sometimes they're weird. Have you ever gotten one of these before? It's like, hey, you want to grab coffee tomorrow? And I have no idea who this person is. And it's like a scammer. And so I'll look at this and she'll read it and she'll be like, who is that? And Haley, she will get jealous. And she's like, who, who is this person? And here's the thing, that, actually, that jealousy, it actually kind of makes me feel good because I'm like, oh, okay, girl. Here's why that's cool, though. Here's why that's cool, though. That jealousy is not an envy about something that doesn't belong to her. I belong to her. I'm in covenant relationship with Haley. So, like, she is mine, and, and I am hers. And so her jealousy is protective because it's something that belongs to her. And so when something is coming against that thing which belongs to her, it makes her feel jealous. This is how God feels for you and me, New Song students. Like God is jealous for you. And he doesn't say turn away from your idols because he needs all the worship because he needs to feel good. No, he says turn away because he knows all of those idols eventually lead to one outcome and that's death. And so he's jealous because he's protective of you because you belong to him because you're his child. He created you and he says, I love you. And so because I love you, you have to turn away from those things. He says, repent. Paul didn't just go to Athens and say, hey, everybody, God loves you. Okay, bye. That's not what he did. He didn't say, hey, God loves you and he wants to bless your life. Okay, peace. No, no, no. He said, hey, God loves you and he created you. So repent because he loves you. Turn away from those things that don't add to your life. Give your life to, to Jesus because you belong to him. Man, we serve an amazing God new song students, right? Man, God is so good. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes as we get ready to respond to this message?